So you're in Luke 20, and I would like to look at verses 1 through 47. And I know your first thought is, yeah, right. But I really want to take a broad sweep through the whole chapter because there's four questions in this chapter. And each question is a sermon. But we're almost two years into the Gospel of Luke, and my goal is actually to finish Luke. And so I want to deal with this broadly, leave you some breadcrumbs, and let you deal with these issues on your own. And I hope that you will because they're very hot topics, so to speak, that the Lord deals with, especially one of them. And so I really want to look at all of them just as from the perspective, rather, of asking questions and being willing to think about them and receive them through the instruction of the word of God. So with that being said, I won't actually read all 47. We'll read bits and pieces along the way. So let me turn to the Lord now in prayer to prepare our hearts for his word. Father, thank you so much, so much for the opportunity that you have given us this morning. For the people who have been purchased at a great price, who have been set apart for the glory of your name. For us to be able to gather together in your name and call out to you in worship through prayer and through singing. And now through the preaching and teaching of your word. And Father, I pray that you'd help us. I know physically we're probably not as sharp as we normally are having gone through yesterday and this past weekend being such a, a, long weekend from, a long weekend for most of us. I pray that you'd help us this morning to be physically alert. But even more importantly, I pray that you'd allow us to be spiritually alert and in tune with what the Spirit of God says through the word that you have written to us, Father. And I pray that we would be willing of heart and humble of heart and receive what your word clearly and plainly says in the text. So help us, Father. I pray that you would bear fruit among us for your namesake and for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, the last time we were together is two weeks ago. Jody was here last week, and we were talking about this issue of authority and submission. If you remember, as Luke 20 gets underway, the religious leaders come in and they challenge the authority of Christ. And then, well, the very reason that they challenge it is to dismiss it or set aside his authority. And by the time you get to the end of Luke chapter 20, you see God dismiss them. They've rejected his son, and so the father rejects these Jewish religious leaders because they refuse the authority of Christ. But I said this, that authority and submission is seen in the Lord. He comes with a submitted life to the will of the father. He humbles himself, and he takes on the nature of a man. He condescends, we say being fully God and he becomes fully man while remaining fully God at the same time. And then he becomes our servant because he takes our sin upon himself and he dies in our place. So you see submission from beginning to end in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does the father do? He raises him from the dead. He seats him at the right hand and he gives him all authority in heaven and on earth. And there he resides today, having authority over all things. So you see submission in the son. You see authority in the son. And we made mention of this. And I know some of you were wrestling with this because the first time you heard this, you see that worked out in every relationship. God is giving us reflections of the son in authority and submission all over the place. But when we come to this again, I want to back out and look at this. This section has four questions in it. 
The first two questions are civil. Well, the first two questions come from the religious leaders. The first one is a civil question. How do we relate in this society in which we live, in which God has created? And the second question is a theological question. Now, those two questions sit in the middle. And then on the outside of those two questions in Luke 20 are two more questions. And those questions are presented by the Son. So we're bookended by two questions from the Son that point to the fact that He is Lord. So the deity of Christ. And then again, all of Luke 20 concludes with judgment because they've refused all the questions. So that's what we're going to deal with this morning. But the decision now to kill Jesus has already been made. And so now they're just working through the details of how we're going to put this boy down to come take up our language. They tried to stone him. That didn't work. They tried to physically lay hands on him and he would slip away by the sovereignty of God. That didn't work. And so they now want to catch him in something he says in order to bring charges before Caesar. So Caesar can do the dirty work of killing the Lord Jesus. So if you look at me in verse 19 of Luke chapter 20, you'll see what I'm talking about. Luke 20 verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. For they had perceived that he had told a parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So notice what they do in verse 20. They watched him. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government, of the governor. Now, I said there's four. There's so many sermons in these passages that I'm going to just throw out a breadcrumb and you can pick it up if you want to and chew on a little while. But that word pretended is a sermon in itself. It's where we get our word hypocrite. In other words, they presented themselves as something they are not. And I'll let you deal with your own Christianity in regard to that word. Don't be pretenders. God knows the difference. So they're presenting themselves as this, and they're trying to gain an opportunity to have Caesar put him to death. But we know the opportunity that will be given. In fact, it's given in Luke 22. Judas Iscariot would provide that opportunity by which the Lord Jesus would be put to death. And the reason it will be him is because God the Father has foreordained it to be him. And so nothing they can do. It's just useless plans that are going to fail one after the other until we get to God's plan. And that one will succeed. But here's the question. Why do they want to kill Jesus? What, what did he ever deserve or what did he ever do to deserve that? You think about that. He healed people. He fed people. He raised a widow's son from the dead. Who's going to hate on that? He loved people and he taught people. And when today's society reads that, this is the perspective they have if they're not foolish enough to understand that these are historical accounts of Jesus in a number of places. They go, well, he's a really good man. Why would they ever want him to put, put him to death? And so they're confused about that. But if you're living in first century, the perspective of the religious, religious leaders is actually more correct than our perspective because the things that he did demanded a response. You see, we skip over the fact that he had absolute power and authority over all things while he was here. Over demons and spiritual forces, over sickness, over death, over sin. And so they saw that and now they got to deal with that. And here's the only two conclusions that you could ever legitimately have about Jesus Christ. There's only two. He's God 
or he's of the devil. That's the only two conclusions you can draw. The power was there. The preaching was there. It's all there. And we're not intelligent enough to realize that. So we skip over that and we call him a good man. He was a man. Yeah, but he was God. And so now you've got to deal with that. He's either God or he's Satan, one of the two, because they're the only ones that can demonstrate that kind of authority and power. And so the religious leaders had this choice. We either humbly submit to him or we kill him. And so they chose to put him to death for many reasons. One of those being because they won't have power and authority if he has it. So let's get to the first question. And it's a civil question. It's a relationship between man and government. Look at verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know. Now remember, this is all pretense. This is hypocrisy. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but you truly teach the way of God. How hypocritical is it to say that and then have an underhanded plan? Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute? In other words, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 23, being God, he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius, which is a coin of a particular amount of money. And then Jesus asked him, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now, again, what's happening? They're just trying to trick him. They present themselves as faithful listeners of his word. And now they're going to turn the corner on him because they want to catch him. And they really think they've got the Lord between a rock and a hard place. Because if he says you need to pay taxes, you've got to realize they're no different than we are. They hated their government. And so if you say pay taxes, you just defended the entire nation of Israel. Okay. Not only that, there's a particular group among the nations called zealots that were going to be especially offended by that because they wanted to overthrow the government. They were a group of Jews, I think Judean Jews, that wanted to overthrow their government and establish their own government. And in fact, they revolt around the year 66 because Rome had introduced... Imperial cult worship, which means you people need to worship Caesar. It's very much like that commercial that we see today. I know probably everybody in the room watches sporting events. And if you'll notice the commercial about Caesar's app. And he actually says in the midst of that commercial, and he's, they're just painting the whole scene for you. Lay some respect on Caesar. In other words, worship Caesar for his giving you the ability to bet and gamble on all these games or all these things and provide you with this. It's the scene painted over. And so the Caesar or the emperor is calling for worship. And so these zealots revolt against that. They actually take Jerusalem in 66, but Rome's bigger and mightier. So in 70 AD, the Romans take Jerusalem back, burn Jerusalem, burn the temple. They burn it all and it's done. So if Jesus says pay taxes, he's got zealots against him. Now, if he says don't pay taxes, well, that's going to offend Caesar and the government. And not only would he be in trouble with the government, he'll be in trouble with the father because the father instructs us to in other places in his word. So notice what, this, what the Lord does in verse 25. He offends both. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. Somehow the Lord found a way to offend everyone with most everything he said. Now, again, 
This was a very difficult subject among those people in that time. Look at verse 24. Show me a denarius. You know what they did? They reached in their pocket and they had one. Why did they have one? Because if a Roman official walked up to them and says, have you paid your taxes? And went through the list and didn't find your name. It's due. And so they walked around with this coin in their pocket to pay taxes in case they got caught by a Roman official to actually pay their taxes because they didn't pay their taxes. They went to jail. <coughs> Excuse me. So every morning they got up and they stuck this coin in their pocket. They're reminded, I hate the government. I hate them. I can't spend this denarius on myself or my kids because I got to keep it just in case the government requires it of me. So if you think it's a hot topic today, you're underestimating how bad it was then. It's always been a hot topic, this issue of our relationship between church and state or church and government. And typically, over time, it has divided the church. But I can say this, I have never known of a time in church history where it's divided the church like it has done today. I heard just this week, someone made the comment on their reporting that the nation is more divided than it's ever been. I don't know about that. I'd say we're really close. Maybe Civil War times we were equally divided. I think it's fair to say that the world's as divided as it's ever been. But where is that okay for the church? That's never been okay. It's like the church has forgotten that the Lord picked two men to be among the twelve that were on opposite ends of this argument. What was Matthew? He was the what? Tax collector. Matthew worked for Rome. He was favored by Rome because he went among his own people and gathered taxes to give them to Caesar. On the opposite end of that spectrum, it was not Simon Peter, but it was Simon the what? Zealot. He's one of those guys. He is so impassioned by his hatred for government, he wants to overthrow the government. And so Jesus picks a zealot and a tax collector. And he's like, let's go, boys. How do you think their lunches went from time to time? But I think what you do see over time is the fact that the kingdom of God became so much more important to them than the kingdom of earth that they loved one another and served one another because the kingdom of God had swept everything away that divided them. And now they were united by this son that came. I don't understand. I really do not understand why that cannot be the case today. Some Christians are more impassioned by their politics than they are about their Christ. And I do not understand that. Like it or not, we have verse 25. Notice with me. He said to them, then render... That word literally means give back what belongs to him. In other words, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And I told you I was going to drop you a breadcrumb. Let me tell you a perspective that I chewed on this week. And I hate to use this time, but it was difficult for me. Do you know you can actually worship God by paying taxes? Because you're obeying God. And any time we turn from our own desires and submit ourselves to the will of God, you're worshiping God. And I had to chew on that this week. There's a lot for here for you to chew on. Let me show you one other thing. Keep a finger in Luke 20. Go forward to Romans 13 and let me show you two quick things and then we'll move on to the second question. Romans 13.
Look at verse 1. First part of verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now jump down to verse 7. Here he goes. Romans 13, 7, render to all what is due them, and we're in the context of governing authorities, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. That's instruction from the Lord. Now turn back, though, to chapter 12, verse 1. Notice this. What comes before 13 is chapter 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So what do you give to Caesar? Whatever he requires. What do you give to God? Everything belongs to God. And here's the conclusion that I came to as I chewed on this. If you can get Romans 12, 1 deeply seated and accepted in your heart, Romans 13, 1 is easy. It really is because it comes under 12, 1. So go back to Luke 20. I'll give you one more comment and it's the response. Go back to the left, Luke 20. Look at verse 26. Or rather, look at verse 24 first. Let me show you a little thing the Lord does here. Verse 24, he says, show me a denarius. And then he says this, whose likeness and inscription is on the denarius. But he uses the word a cone, which is the word image. So let me ask you the thing that they had to wrestle with. Whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. Whose image is on the man? God's. That's why he comes first. But notice the response again to all these things. Verse 26. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, what'd they do? Silent. When do we fall silent? When we don't answer. And you sit here this morning before the word of God and the truth of God, and I presented something to you that God says, and so you have to respond in your own heart. Do I just go, change the subject? Not time to go. And completely ignore the truth, or do you pick up that piece of breadcrumb and chew on it and swallow it and let it change your perspective and thinking about life? You either become silent or you obey. Let's go to question number two. 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us. Now let me pause. This is a long section. I want to pause along the way and not have to go back and work through everything. They appeal to Moses. Now, who are the Sadducees? And by the way, as far as I know, this is the only time the Sadducees and Jesus cross paths anywhere. Some say that they were very conservative in their holding of Scripture. In fact, they didn't accept anything in the Old Testament except the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Who wrote those? Moses. It's called the Pentateuch. And so that's why they present this question, Moses wrote for us because they would never appeal to the prophets. Now, secondly, they thought, since we just used the first five books, there is no resurrection from the dead. You can't find that, surely, they thought, in the first five books. And so they didn't believe in spiritual things. Angels, spirituality, very anti-charismatic, resurrection from the dead. Now, that's funny. We all die. Deal with it. That was their perspective. And so they make up this scenario to make fun of the afterlife. Okay? Now watch this. 
Verse 28, Moses wrote for us that if a man brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. He died without kids. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no kids and they died. And then here comes their question. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, Lord, whose wife will that woman be? For the seven had her all as a wife, for all seven had her as a wife. Now, first of all, that's kind of creepy, isn't it? But you do need to understand that was God's law. In Deuteronomy 25, this is what the Lord says. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. No, her husband's brother shall take her to himself as his wife Perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. That's weird, but here's why. Because that was a word only for the nation of Israel because God didn't want anybody's name to die. Now, I've told you this before. That's the last Carol boy. There are other Carol boys around. It's scary that there's more than one. But all of them are on beyond the age of, not mine, cousins. They're all beyond the age of having kids. And so if my son doesn't have a son, the carols are done. Well, in the nation of Israel, God was like, no, 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 no. These are my people. This is my nation. Not going to happen. And so there always had to be this continuation of the name. And there always had to be continuation of the property that is owned. God said, I said it. It's done. Stay with it. So that's why he did this. But again, they're being hypocrites. They don't even believe in the resurrection. But notice what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and they are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now watch what Jesus does. I love this. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised. Even Moses. What? Why'd you go there? Even Moses in the passage about the bush showed where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living for all live to him. First part, he went to Moses. You say you know Moses? Let's go to Moses. And I'll show you how you're wrong in your theology and your thinking about the resurrection. I don't care. I'll go anywhere. He wrote it. But I'll go to the book of Moses and just show you. The second thing that you need to point out is, and Matthew does a, a much better jo uh, a job of this, I think. Luke is, he's the guy that likes to sum everything up and move on. Obviously, you know I'm not that guy. Matthew gives you all the details. In other words, Matthew puts the verb tense in the uh, position of priority. So you'll notice this. God is not the God of the dead, for God says, I am the God of Abraham. So how can you be a present tense God of Abraham if Abraham's been dead? You can't be. And so God says, I am currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Pay attention to what you're reading, he tells them. Second thing about this, how can he be the God of Jacob and tell Moses that? Because how long had been Jacob had been dead when Moses shows up at the bush? 430 years. How can I be the God of Jacob if Jacob's been dead for 430 years? Unless, of course, Jacob's not dead. And so he shuts down their thinking. Matthew says this about, about this, uh, in this 
circumstance in Scripture, this context, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You say you know the first five books, you don't even understand those. Now look at their response, verse 40. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Are you kidding me? Why did they fall silent? Well, I mean, we all believe what we want to believe, right? We all have that right. I mean, if I don't believe in the resurrection, I don't have to believe in the resurrection. Don't be so foolish. In fact, you don't have any rights what to believe or what not to believe. This right here commands you what to believe. That's why I hate to have the questions. Well, what do you believe? And I always respond, well, what does that matter? Everything that I know is right here. I wouldn't bother you with my beliefs. I have beliefs about who should pitch in the next game in the World Series. What does that matter? I know what God has said, and that shapes all of my thinking. But they fall silent. If Jesus was able to correct my theology, you know what my response would be? Oh, I got a lot more questions. Let me just get out my book. I got a list of things I don't understand. They don't even ask him any more questions because he's offended them. Now, here's a question. Can being wrong about the resurrection kill you, meaning not be saved? Well, let me, you don't have to go there, but if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 15, listen to the words of Paul. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we're found to be liars of God because we've testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. In other words, if you ever meet somebody that goes, "Ah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the resurrection. You can respond as, well, then you're not a Christian. Because there is no gospel, there is no faith, there is no resurrection for you. Everything you believe is worthless. You see how this works? So when we come to the Word of God, we don't come to the Word of God to find what we believe. We come to the Word of God to be changed in what we believe. And if you'll approach the Bible that way, you'll learn a lot from the Lord. Rather than trying to always confirm what you believe. Now... Theological error is all over the place. Some of it's deadly, some of it's not, but it affects everyone from pulpit to pew, everywhere, every church, every denomination. And again, some of it kills. Let's think about Jehovah's Witness. They do not believe in the deity of Christ. God the Father created God the Son. There was a time when He was not. Now they've got a potato sack full of bad theology, but that's enough to kill you. Because you don't believe in the deity of the Son. You don't believe in the Trinity. Man, if you don't believe in that, you've got no gospel. What about Mormons? I got a dear friend that was Mormon. I shared the faith and walked her through it. She professed faith and was baptized. Now she's going back to Mormons. Listen to their belief. They're universalists. In the end, everyone wins. Everyone goes to heaven. They reject the idea of the gospel. There's no need for repentance and faith. And they reject much of the Word of God because it contains the Word of God and not is the Word of God. It's just parts that God said and other parts that He didn't say. And guess what parts He said? The parts that agree with them. And then they follow the book of Joseph. 
Will that kill you? All day long. Catholicism. I'll run through these quickly. Catholicism view of salvation contains all of this. Grace, faith, good works, baptism, participation in the sacraments, penance, indulgences, keeping the commandments. In other words, you got a lot of work to do to get to heaven. Does that offend the gospel in every single way, shape, and form? Will that kill you all day long? Now, I put this one in here because this question actually came to me this week. And I want to deal with the primitive Baptist, knowing that my grandmother, my grandfather went to a primitive Baptist church. And Miss Seal will tell you, she knows this very well. The reason this church is called Corinth Missionary Baptist Church is because of the split that happened in the 1800s. Missionary Baptists believe in proclaiming the name of his glory among the nations. The primitive Baptists did not believe that. In fact, issue number one in their argument in 1832 was the gospel itself. Now, let me say it quick to this. Primitive Baptists have no denomination. If you think we're autonomous as Baptists, they have gone out the roof with their own autonomy, meaning the one over here may not agree with the one over here. There is no agreement or association. They do what they want. So my prayer is, I don't know, my prayer is they hold to the gospel. But let me tell you what the denomination as a whole says about the gospel. Salvation is by grace. But if a person sets forth any work, such as repentance, faith, baptism, or hearing the gospel as a condition for salvation, then that is works. Salvation is by grace. Nothing can be added. God chooses some to be saved and some to be condemned. They call repentance and faith the work. Now, I can't tell you how clear Scripture is. I'm about to lose my voice. On this teaching about the need to proclaim the name among the nations. I can't tell you how Scripture, we'll get to the book of Romans, how the gospel must be preached in order for people to be saved. But if that's found in any of our community, that faith and repentance and the preaching of the gospel is a work, that is not a saving situation that you can be in. I dearly pray that my grandparents heard the gospel, repented and believed. And I pray that no man lied to them that they don't have to repent and believe and hear in the gospel. Some people call that Calvinism. <laughs> that's not Calvinism. That's crazy. For them, and they say this on their literature, the gospel has no part in bringing eternal life or righteousness in the sight of God. It is only designed to give knowledge and light to those who have already been saved. The gospel, they say, has no role in salvation, nor is the preaching of the gospel necessary. And then they say this, no one will be in heaven because of what he believed, but many will be there in spite of it. Meaning, and someone asked them this, if a man in India worships Buddha and he never hears the gospel, but God elects him, that man will find himself in heaven. To which they responded, absolutely that is not a saving message, and that's very prominent in our community. Now, let me pick on our us, and all these are just little things for you to chew on. Southern Baptists are plagued by error. If I knew of a kind that would kill, I wouldn't be here. But they are plagued with error greatly. In fact, one of our errors made national news this week. In the last presidential election for the SBC convention, 
This is how they coined their phrases. We had one who is a liberal and one who is a conservative. We're even using political terms now instead of godly. I don't understand that. But nonetheless, there was a letter that leaked out by someone else in the SBC denomination. I won't share names. I will if you want me to after service. But someone else leaked out a letter that blamed the conservative for hiding sexual immorality within the denomination. Now, I do believe he leaked the letter, and I do believe he probably did that just to shut down. So who guess who won the election? Well, the liberal won the election, and so that's the guy that we have now. And the conservative was quickly dismissed because he's a guy that hides sexual immorality. And whether or does he not, I have no idea. But guess what the conservative did this week that made national news? He sued the other guy for $750,000. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, what does 1 Corinthians 6 teach? Can't do that. Can't sue your brother. In fact, the World News took a snippet from his sermon that he preached several years ago, the conservative that's suing, where he stood in the pulpit and said, you cannot sue your brother, even if he defames your name, give glory to Christ. I'm like, man, that hurts. So whether or not any of that is true, you need to know theological error abounds. And either you submit to the authority of Scripture or you wind up being a fool. And it's everywhere. Now, let's get to the questions the Lord asked. I know it's getting late. I'll move a little quicker. They're pretty cut and dry. Look at verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. You kidding me? God is preaching the gospel to lost people? Seems necessary to me. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who gave you this authority? So he answered them a question. I'll ask you this. Now you tell me. Verse 4. Was the baptism of John from heaven or man? And so they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, Well, I don't know. And Jesus responded, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And it's really a simple question. Before I answer your question, let me ask you a question. John. God or man, where'd he come from? Now you're very familiar with John's preaching. It was a baptism of repentance that many people believed and obeyed. John said that he was sent by God to prepare the way for the Son of God. When asked if he was the Messiah, John responded, Oh, no, 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 no. I baptize with water, but one is coming after him. He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. And then John goes on to say, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In fact, when John baptized Jesus, what, did John, what was John's testimony? Oh, I saw the Spirit descend in bodily form, and I heard a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, if you go, Okay, John's from God. Okay, then what about me, who he was preaching about? Obvious conclusion, then you're the Son of God. We were wrong. But notice what they do in verse 5. It says they discussed it with one another. That word, and it's a big word, wouldn't try to pronounce it, hurt myself. It's the word which literally means they ran through all the possible scenarios. If we say this, he'll say that. If we say this, then he'll respond with this. We really got to be careful. And one of the older guys goes, I know what we need to say. Say nothing. That's the best thing you can say. And so that was their response. We have no response because the truth was about to cost them dearly. The correct answer would point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah 
which means their previous question about authority was absolutely foolish. You do realize if they'd have gone, oh, okay, I see that. John said this, you're that. Sorry about that previous question where I asked you where you got your authority. You're God. But they didn't do that. Now, I want you to notice this. Jesus said, then neither will I answer your questions. And one commentator put this. When there's faith, the Lord says this. Truly, truly, I tell you. And when there's not faith, the Lord says this. Neither will I tell you. And the reason I point that out is because sometimes you guys get so worked up about having the right answers to engage in theological or Bible or Christian conversations. Don't ever do that. And here's why. Most of their questions, they're not asking sincerely. They're hypocrites and they just want to argue. I've shared this story with before. Stay with me if you can. I know you're tired. Had a girl come up to me one time that was living with a guy and she point blank asked me, what does the Bible say about this? And I point blank answer, I will not tell you. And she said, why? I said, because it will make you even more accountable than you already are. And then I said this, isn't it funny? If you knew it to be right, you'd have never asked me that question. I've never had a wife come up to me and say, is it right for me to live with my husband? Who would ask that? That's dumb. And yet every couple that lives together has this conscience within them that they want to hide what they're doing. They're ashamed of what they're doing because even without the word of God, they know it to be wrong and they do not care. So don't break your neck trying to come up with the right answers. They're not even asking questions for the right reasons. But again, the response, we have no answer. Last question, look at verse 41. Last question in this section, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so the Lord says, David thus calls him Lord. So how in the world could he be his son? Now, if they'd have thought about this, they would have remembered 2 Samuel 7 where David is promised that his son will sit on the throne forever. So everyone in Israel knew the Messiah's coming down through David. But the Lord says, but I got a question for you. Psalms 110, David wrote these words. The Lord said to my Lord. So why in the world would David say he'll be my son, yet I call him Lord? Now don't miss the logic. That means the son of David's going to be God. Now that is confusing, but he wants them to chew on it. And if they would chew on it, they would come to the right conclusion. Did they? No, they didn't, they didn't want to ask the question. They don't even want to think about this. And you'll be surprised to know that almost everyone you meet, whether they're atheists or preachers, the overwhelming majority don't want to think about difficult things that run against what their thinking already is. But let me simply give you Matthew's response to this. No one after this very scene, Matthew writes, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. That was the last question before Calvary. Now, as I said, the two in the middle teach us life. The two on the outside teach us about the deity of Christ. And if you get the deity of Christ right, the two in the middle are easy because he is Lord. A couple more questions. Why are we like this, by the way? We'd rather stick our hands in our pockets and say nothing 
rather than letting God's word change who we are. Why don't we do that? The reason that we do that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when we told God, I don't really care what you say. I'm going to eat from this tree anyway. And so we became our own God who rely upon our own thinking. That's why you are like you are. Can anything help you? Yes. Yes, it can. That's called the gospel. You must hear it and you must turn from your sins and put your faith in it. And then Jesus does something marvelous. He begins to change the way that you think about everything. What happens if we do not turn to Christ, deliver us from such foolishness? That's answered in the last verses of, of Luke 20. Look with me at verse 45. In the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, Beware, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at the feast. They take advantages of widows or literally they devour widows' houses. And for show or pretense, they make long prayers. Notice what the Lord says. They will receive a greater condemnation. A greater. Which left me with three types of Christians or people who profess Christ, rather, as I thought about that. There are those who profess Christ, but have almost no interest in the things of Christ. That's confusing to me, but there are people like that. There are those who profess Christ who have developed their own religion. They're everywhere. And there are those who profess Christ, who submit to Christ, obey Christ, and worship Christ. What have you done with the teachings of Christ? Chew on that. And then this last question is, how have you responded to what the Father has said about the Son? How have you responded to what God has said about His Christ? That's where you start. Let's pray.